And now on WRS, Michael McKay with the McKay Interview. Hello everyone. Today the McKay Interview begins something new. And I hope you'll find the coming mini-series of programs as interesting to listen to as I have conducting the interviews and enjoying the conversations. The English-speaking peoples of the world is a phrase we Anglophones know well. And I'm not sure who first coined it, but that great Englishman Winston Churchill certainly popularised it, if that's the correct word, by choosing that phrase for the title of his great work of literature, The History of the English-Speaking Peoples. So highly regarded was this book that it was mentioned in the citation for his Nobel Prize for Literature. Now, Churchill was a Victorian, born in 1874. He was also a child of empire, the British Empire. He lived 91 years, long enough to see the sun set on that empire, and he lived just long enough to see India, plus Britain's other possessions in Asia and the subcontinent, as well as in Africa and the West Indies, all win their independence from Britain. But when Churchill wrote of the English-speaking peoples, he was referring, of course, to, apart from Britain, those old or essentially Anglo-Saxon dominions, formerly colonies, loyal to the Crown, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and South Africa, plus, of course, the United States of America, estranged from Britain and an independent nation since 1776, but a continental republic of vast potential with, most importantly, English as its common language. Winston Churchill's mother was, incidentally, an American. The record shows that in the 100 years between 1830 and 1930, over 7.5 million people in Britain left for the USA. And by about 1930, 75 million people in the United States were of British origin. Speaking half a century earlier, Bismarck, the great chancellor of the newly united Germany, was right to remark that the most potent force in modern history would prove to be the fact that North Americans speak English. Now, why is all this a subject for the McKay interview? Well, personally speaking, I'm curious about the capacity of English to spread and spread its influential wings. And the widespread use of English, the English language, has certainly made life easier for me in a linguistic way. And after living here in Switzerland for 30 years, and I'm embarrassed to admit mastering neither French nor when I first came to arrive in the canton of Zug, German. And I'll bet many of you listening today probably feel the same. And in this world city of Geneva, where English is essentially the second language, I thought it would be interesting both for me and for you, the listeners, to discover the point of view of those same six countries to which Churchill referred and ask them to describe to me, to us, just how the world looks today in 2014 from their perspective, while at the same time reflecting on the degree to which their countries changed since Churchill wrote his great work between the 1930s when he started and the late 1950s when he finally finished. So to help understand these different perspectives, I've invited, and I hope they will all accept, representatives, ambassadors and former ambassadors of those six countries, the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, South Africa and the United States to talk to me about their country and the world. Now, for no particular reason except that she will be leaving Switzerland to return home shortly, I'm starting today with the Republic of South Africa. My guest is Konji Sabati, who's been a friend of mine for a number of years and was South Africa's ambassador to Switzerland and then to France before taking up a senior post at the World Intellectual Property Organization, which is where we are at this moment. Long before she became a successful diplomat, she was a highly successful corporate executive in her native South Africa. And you can tell by the sound of her name that she's most definitely not Anglo-Saxon. But that doesn't matter to me. What's important is she knows the temper and the temperature of her country 
better than most. So good afternoon, Condry. Thank you for accepting my invitation to talk to me and through me, our World Radio Switzerland listeners in the Geneva region, across Switzerland and beyond. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for inviting me. In fact, I do have an Anglo-Saxon name, which I do I dumped when I <laughs> became 18. I didn't know. And I'm Maureen. Okay. Yeah, Maureen. I, I'm not sure where my mother okay. got it from, but yes, I do have an Anglo-Saxon Maureen. name. Maureen Sabati. That's right. Well, look, Scotty, my first question is to ask you to describe briefly what South Africa would have looked like for Churchill's English-speaking peoples, essentially the British, not the Afrikaners, nor the various tribes and groups who were indigenous to South Africa, during those 20 years when he was writing his book. Or put another way, imagine for us, if you could, in that very difficult period of world history, the 30s, 40s, 50s, if you were able to take a bird's-eye view of your country, what would you have seen then? Well, I think first we should remember that Winston uh, Churchill and Cecil Rhodes, uh, the two renowned Englishmen, were um, architects of apartheid in some ways. Mm -hmm. So we still see Churchill with some jaundiced eyes okay. in South Africa. Um, they, they set the scene for the laws that, that deprive black people of independence. Yeah. Uh, partnering with, uh, with uh, John Smarts, uh, remember old John mm -hmm. Smarts, who was a buddy and a... a, a um, a, a huge fan of the of the of the British um, Empire. Right. Um, so if I if I had a bird's eye view of the 1930s, I would have been um, thoroughly confused as mm. to what actually the British wanted in South Africa and for South Africa, yeah. or particularly the Africans. Yeah. Uh, because during their racial, what they call the racial conflict now, I know we, dif we call it differently now because it's between black and white, but yeah. at the time it was between Africans, Africaners, and then the British. This is the 30s, 30s, 40s. In the 30s, yeah. that's yeah. right. So yeah. the, 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 uh, the Anglo-Boer Wars um, had, had actually, the British had actually encouraged the Africans to join them, yeah. to join the British, yeah. to, to defeat the Africaners. Yeah. And and informing the Africans that this is for their own benefit. But soon after that, um, Churchill himself actually um, argued passionately that the Afrikaners uh, should be allowed self-rule. Before the outbreak of the Second World War. Before the yeah. outbreak, which in fact, uh, he admitted that black Africans would be excluded from, from, from the vote, okay. which was almost, uh, it felt like they were retracting from what they had promised. Yeah. Yeah. At the beginning, yeah. so, so I would have seen the thirties as a very confused, confused era. Period of time. Uh, what do the British actually want in Africa? Do yeah. they want the Africans just to support them to to oust the Africaners, and yeah. uh, and then they impose their own, uh, you know, liberal but still segregated uh, rules? Yeah, I understand. Yeah. So if we now go to the time when Churchill finished his book, namely the late nineteen fifties, what did South Africa look like then? Well, as, as as I said earlier on, that in the after nineteen forty eight, when the 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 African Union, uh, no, sorry, not the African Union, the Union of South Africa, uh, came into place, South Africa began to completely retreat from from. You know, there was democracy in South Africa. Mm. You know that at some point there was some democracy. So yeah. we actually went into a second democracy in nineteen ninety four. Of course, it was nowhere near what what ninety four was. Yeah. But South Africa be began uh, introducing a plethora of laws mm -hmm. that were just about entrenching apartheid. After the election of 48. After the election yeah. of 48. So yeah. the, the era of the 50s was a very, very difficult time for, for South Africa. Mm -hmm. They enacted laws uh, like... Uh, like I said, a plethora, mm. one after the other. There was the Bantu Authorities Act of 1951, mm. which uh, ushered a system of formalized segregation, mm. territorial separation. When they broke up. 
when they broke up the, exactly. the, into the homelands, the yeah. Bantustan yeah. area, Bantustan era, place. sorry, uh, uh, insisting that uh, the ethnic groups should be led and administered by the the traditional system of chiefs and uh, and uh, traditional authority, yeah. the hierarchy of chiefs, and then um, they they came up again with the Population Registration Act of 1950, mm-hmm. which uh, required that every South African should be classified. Mm-hmm. You should be black, this white, Indian, or colored. Colored, yeah. This is a notorious. And uh, yeah. it is very notorious. And of course, a lot of black people who looked a little lighter mm-hmm. wanted, obviously, to be colored because yeah. the benefits were different. different the yeah. housing was different and all that. But you had to go through even a, what they used to call a, a pencil test. Yeah. So they put a pencil through your hair. Yeah. And yeah. if it goes through, you know that the whole this, history. Yeah. yeah. So that was, yeah. a, the, the, again, another act of 1950. Then they came up with the... the, the um, the reservations of separate amenities act mm. again, which 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 allowed them to put boards in in, in parks to mm. say no blacks. Yeah. There were even no blacks or those. In, in the fifties. In the fifties. Yeah. So okay. it was a very very difficult time for South Africa. Okay. But at the same time, um, the ANC also started to on to mobilize. Uh, of course, at the beginning it was the mass resistance uh, movement or in the form of of. Uh, of strikes and defiance campaigns, uh, mm-hmm. not not a violent, uh, um, uh, not violent defiance campaign, just a, 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 a non-violent resistance. Yeah. In particular, the past laws which were introduced uh, in 1954, mm-hmm. and you remember the 1956 march of the women to to the union buildings. So while that was happening, of course, the, the ANC's uh, the freedom when you, charter. When you say the union buildings, these were the parliament in Pretoria. Those are the parliament, absolutely. Yeah, okay. the, 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 the women uh, marched to the Pretoria yeah. to the Pretoria uh, okay. union buildings. That's yeah. right, um, parliamentary buildings yeah. uh, to protest against uh, the past laws. Yeah. Um, and then in uh, 19, so there was a lot of things happening on the ANC side too. So let's fast forward now to today. What, sure. What's happening today? Let's start with the Anglo-Saxons, if you like, the British bit. Uh, is it not the case that an increasing number of younger ones are leaving? And how would you describe the current situation for them, the younger generation of British extraction South Africans, and the nation then as a whole? What's the situation? It's a very complicated question in such a short period of time. Well, but how would you describe South Africa today? First of all, as we call them, we call them the born freeze. Mm. They, they grew up in a, in, a, in a world that didn't have apartheid. Yeah. They don't believe the stories that we tell them. My children, I tell them what I went through. They don't believe we actually went through that. So they see the world in a different way. And I think the the, the, the issue of an exodus of Ang- of uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon speak, I don't think it's actually, I think it's a bit sensationalized. It's been exaggerated. Hasn't Absolutely. It? Because yeah. They are just leaving because the opportunities are there. Yeah. They are leaving for work, to travel, to see the world. So they might uh, come back. Yeah, they, and, come they back. want to come back. Yeah, they sure. do want to come back. And of yeah. course, as you know, that the the ninety four lot that left, yeah. you know, post uh, elections, are all clamoring to get back to South Africa. I didn't know. Yeah. They're, com- they're clamoring. They're to come still back, coming yeah. back in okay. rows. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. So coming down to the present and looking from South Africa outwards. How does the world look from Pretoria's perspective? And let's look at the big international issues first. What does South Africa see as the main global issues which affect it, either to its advantage or to its disadvantage? I think South Africa, and and in particular its foreign policy, is based on on, on the principle of Ubuntu. You are because I am, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think that that the, the the approach of South Africa to global issues is very much based on that. Mm-hmm. That we we see we South Africa that is, we see um, 
from the dawn of, 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 of democracy that the international community has looked up to us yes. as a leader in Africa. Mm. And we have taken that bait uh, you know, uh, of, 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 of leading and, and, and showing meaningful um, uh, improvement in Africa, working very closely with, with the African Union and, and, the, and, the, and its structures. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think we... Um, we have we have had to play that role of of championing the the policies of Africa across the world. So it's not just the fact that you that, that you regard yourself as leaders, but that others outside South Africa actually look to you. They do. As they leaders. do absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. and as you know, a lot of uh, even on the, on the economic front, a lot of companies that come into to to Africa, they kind of want to start in South Africa first, and and even use that as they are. You know, launching pad throughout mm. Africa. So yes, we we have a lot of international relations and a lot of business that we've been able to attract to South so speaking Africa. Speaking honestly, and you know the continent well, do, does this engender any resentment from um, other African countries, or are you still a diplomat? And it would be difficult. Uh, no, to say. I mean, no, 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 absolutely. <laughs> I, I, it is. Um, I think it's natural. Mm. It, it can only be natural that it would engender. Um, a feeling of competition, a feeling of big brother. Yeah. Uh, and I remember President Baker during his days when our ambassador served in his term, mm -hmm. uh, he always reminded us that we have to be very, very sensitive yeah. in the way we present ourselves so he, as leaders in Africa. He stressed that to the he ambassador. He used to stress that. Yeah. And, and he, he was very passionate about us having missions in Africa everywhere. Yeah. Uh, we have about 40, 48 to 49 embassies throughout Africa, mm. out of 54 countries. So that covers most and of the countries, yeah. Absolutely. Sure. So I think that's an indicator that we, we regard Africa as our first and foremost important uh, trading partner. Fine. My guest today is Kondi Sabati, who until fairly recently was the South Africa ambassador to France and before that to Switzerland. And we're talking about South Africa's place in the firmament of the English-speaking peoples. Uh, sometimes you, South Africa, are the S in the BRICS countries. And which are the regions or countries which South Africa tends to concentrate its attention on for trade and other alliances? Well, um, I, I think, as you are aware, that the, the, the alliance that South Africa got into with uh, India and Brazil and, and China, mm, the, the Russia. three major, and mm, Russia, mm. Uh, they are emerging powers and very strong emerging powers. And uh, they, are, they are looking, they, I mean, they, they, of course, there's been a geopolitical shift which has maybe made some uncomfortable Europe and, and the US in particular because mm. Europe and US remain our biggest trading partners. Course, yeah. However, we as South Africa took the, 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 the stand of uh, looking at other geopolitical regions that looked similar to mm -hmm. us as uh, uh, growing countries. So yes, we have become a very strong, uh, formed very strong alliances between India, Brazil, and, and, and uh, we settled with IPSA, the India, Brazil, and South Africa. India, and, Brazil, and South, and South Africa. Africa yeah, the okay. IPSA, and then we joined BRICS, which, is, which adds China and, uh, and Russia. And now turning to look within South Africa, your country is bountiful riches, gold, diamonds, uranium, other valuable minerals, a large land area, a relatively small population, and a huge economy by African standards. But it also has large problems left from the legacy of those terrible years of apartheid, insufficient housing, inadequate running water, low standards of public education, economic prospects for the, the black majority. 
When you were ambassador, how did you characterize the huge changes in your country? I mean the Mandela post-Mandela period, and, and how do you characterize South Africa's future prospects? I, th I think it's undeniable that since 94, South Africa is a different country altogether. Mm -hmm. It is not the country that I was uh, grew up in. Um, it has been, arguably, it has been for the better. Yeah. Um, and as you say, of course, the, the legacy of apartheid, uh, there is just s such a backlog, yeah. whether it's housing, whether it's schooling, education, health, uh, and we're catching up. We're mm. catching up. Some would argue that maybe we're catching up too slowly. Uh, people are impatient. People, when Mandela came out of prison, people thought they'd have a roof above their head, they'd have mm. a meal on their table, the schools would be there, just like Very that. Quickly, yeah. Major bullet. Sure. Yeah. And it wasn't to be, you know. Um, but um, I think more than anything else, just being liberated, being able to do what you want to do when you can, yeah. where you can do it, has been really, really, I think, something that we, 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 we use as our base to move forward. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I know we're not doing particularly well. Uh, we just celebrated our 20 years in, in democ um, of democracy. Mm -hmm. Our economic growth has gone down 1.9 last year as compared to 5% economic growth throughout Africa. Yep. Um, we are plagued with a lot of things. We have a lot of strikes. We have been having a lot of um, mining uh, problems. But I, 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 I want to believe that um, we, we are getting there. So despite yes. the passing of the great Mandela, despite we, we can't have a conversation Mandela. about it without spending a little bit more time talking about Nelson Mandela sure. because he's so significant. Right. Um, the progress of South Africa is in the right direction in that respect. Huh? Truly. Yeah. I, do. I mean, we, yes, of course, like I said, we have a lot of problems. We, we have about 36% unemployment rates. and So we do, we do have problems. And we don't, we don't, I don't think, we don't, plays over the problems we we are trying to the the the, the, the government is really trying to address uh, uh, these problems piecemeal but we we need a lot of um, investment a lot of funding okay. to, to to be able to implement all our policies but, but the prospects are good the positive. prospects are good yeah. and one important question uh, about South Africa's progress and development is the English language how right. important is English in South Africa, given and when I checked that you have 10 other official languages right. apart from English. That was a surprise to me. Where, yeah, where does English fit into all this? Oh, it, it's, 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 it's a lingua franca. Mm. English is the language of the people. It will be there, it's been there, it will always be there. Um, but the 11 languages, you know, they, they are actually grouped. Mm. Uh, Quite a few of them are from the Bantu dialect, so mm -hmm. we can understand. I grew up in Soweto. Mm -hmm. I had a neighbor who was closer. Uh, Zulu played with kids was Tswana, Sutu, you know. Mm -hmm. So we, I, I, most people who grew up in the township speak maybe seven of the languages. Really? Yes, wow. because the dialects are more or less the yeah. same. Are these written languages as well? They are written languages. Absolutely, really? they're Gosh. all written yeah. languages. Fascinating. Yeah. You can get a PhD on Venda. Okay. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that could be my next career. <laughs> absolutely. Ambassador. Since you failed to learn German. <laughs> absolutely, <yeah>. ambassador. <laughs> Sabati, thank you very much for your time. We wish you all success in whatever you do in your next part of your career. Thank, thank you. you very much. That was The McKay Interview with Michael McKay. And don't forget, you can hear that interview again on our website, worldradio.ch.